Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Well, think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter. John Stott was born on 27th of April, 1921. And in this, the centenary year of his birth, we're meeting different people around the world who either knew him or who were influenced by him. Please join me, Mark Mannell, as month by month we explore different aspects of the extraordinary life, ministry and legacy of Uncle John. It's been quite a year talking to people from all over the world, from six out of the seven continents, from all kinds of different backgrounds and walks of life. And there were many more that we could have met, as there were plenty of others I'd love to have chatted to. But we planned this as a project for John Stott's centenary year, and we've only just overshot by a couple of months. It's time to draw things to a close. And this final conversation is a special one, recorded in London just a few weeks ago at one of the rare moments when three people's diaries converged. Chris Wright has led Langham Partnership since it was formed in 2001, formed as an umbrella for Langham scholars, Langham literature, and then Langham preaching. He has a unique portfolio in that he is a widely respected Old Testament scholar, theologian and missiologist. But also, he's known as a preacher and thoughtful leader, as seen in particular through his work outside Langham with the Lausanne movement. Chris stepped back from leadership in 2021 to become the organization's global ambassador and to make way for our new international director, Tayo Arakawe. After many years in church planting in his native Nigeria and elsewhere in Africa, he moved to the UK 15 years ago to serve the church in London, culminating in a senior role at London City Mission before moving to Langham. So there's a nice symmetry here. John Stott called on Chris to lead Langham, and now, 20 years later or so, Chris has handed on to Tayo. Chris, I wonder if you would tell us uh, how it all began. Well, Langham for me had begun uh, quite a bit earlier because I was one of the trustees of the Evangelical Literature Trust. I've been that since the late 1980s, uh, so I, I got to know John Stott quite well before that. But it was in 1999 and 2000 that he was contemplating a greater measure of retirement, as he called it, <laughs> since, he was, since he was coming up to 80 years old, and uh, was looking with some of his friends as to what should happen to the Langham Ministries, Langham Trust and ELT in the years ahead. So just clarify, the Langham Trust, was that for scholars? Yes, it was by then. It was clearly, it had sort of other reasons for existence when he founded it in 1969 to support his own ministry, but fundamentally it was the, it was the scholar programme of the Langham Trust, mm. um, of which he was the chair, uh, you know, that he mm-hmm. founded it. And then there was the Literature Trust and two boards of trustees, two honorary, you know, coordinators and everything, so they were quite separate charities. Um, so he convened a conference in uh, uh, in 1999, with a number of his friends to say, well, what should we do? And the these IFES regional directors mm. and so on, they came together at High Wycombe, and I went along to that. Oh, was Lindsay Brown at that? I think I've yes, talked to him about was, that. Yeah. Yes. Lindsay was there, and a lot of people were there. Mm. And the decision that came out of that basically was that the ELT and the Langham Trust, they needed to m- merge because people didn't like that they had to apply to different organisations for uh-huh. different things. 
And secondly, they did want them to continue and they thought then there needed to be somebody who would pull things together and coordinate in John's place. And then it was after that, uh, during 2020, that John... I had already written to him asking, because at that time I was principal of All Nations Christian College and had been for eight years, yeah. been there for 13 altogether. And I was looking to my own future, thinking, well, what would be next? What would be good? And uh, when John start, started saying, well, there's the Langham Ministries and would you be interested in taking those on? So in the end, that's what I did. And that happened then in 2001, September. We moved down here to where we're sitting now, mm. to um, Whitfield Place in London. And I started work as the International Ministries Director for Langham Partnership International, which didn't even really exist. So <laughs> it was... It, was quite a it sounded impressive, though. It sounded very <laughs> impressive. Yeah, I mean, it sounded much more impressive than it actually was, because, as I said, it, it didn't really have any real existence legally. Uh, it was just a bunch of friends who I had to trust pretty well. Mm. And John Stott, of course. Mm. So here we are, 21 years on, and Tyre is with us round the table. So, Tyre, do you, how did it begin with you? Well, I think, you know, started in 20. 20 now, time flies. I'm okay. not really sure of this, but about 2020, when uh, I was at London City Mission mm-hmm. as the ministry's director, and then I got a phone call from a guy called Alan, who happens to be the recruiter for mm-hmm. Langham at that time. And he said, If I was aware of this role, I said, I didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. But as at that time, I was actually. Uh, I had started a kind of uh, restructuring at London City Mission. I was coming to an end of that restructuring when he called me. And that was February 2020. And I told him I wasn't really too keen because I didn't want to sound as if I was running away from the heat of that restructure. Right. <laughs> so I said to him, if you give me time to think and finish what I'm doing, I will consider uh, coming to Langham and that. He said, okay. And of course, that was the beginning of COVID. Yeah, exactly. COVID, you know, COVID, I was trying to manage a change. Then COVID had come and everything was in a mess. So I didn't hear from him again until I think October of that year. And by August of 2020, I had already finished at least the first phase of my restructuring. Right. So I thought with a clear conscience, I could say to folks, I want to move on. And here we are. So yeah, yeah. the rest is history. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole year of history. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, we'll come back to you, Ty, in a moment, just what the sort of baptism of fire has been like. Um, but obviously, Langham is a very different animal now from 21 years ago. So how much did you envisage growing into a global organisation that it is now? The honest answer is not at all. And I, I honestly don't think John Stott did either. I remember having a meal with him in one of his favourite restaurants in Great Portland Street, Di Martino's, mm-hmm. uh, just opposite Effie's. Those were his two. And I asked him, you know, what would the job involve and why me? And I never really got a satisfactory <laughs> answer to either of those two questions. Still. <laughs> and and I, I do remember sitting at the desk downstairs because we did we came to live here in, uh, in Whitfield Place because the council said, look, if you're going to work with John Stott and for John Stott, then you need to at least live close to him because uh, he can't travel mm. much more. And so then Richard Buse, who was the, the then rector at All Souls, said, well, if you're coming to work with John Stott, you must be an honorary member of the team the ministry team at, at All Souls because I'm ordained and so on. So I ended up uh, here, close to John Stott. Uh, and the, the, at that time, I remember sitting at my desk downstairs 
one morning thinking, what am I supposed to be doing? Because the Langham Scholar Program still had the honorary coordinator, Paul Berg, he mm -hmm. was running them. I, I went and visited some of the scholars and tried to sort of get full. The Evangelical Literaturist, as it still was, still had a, an honorary coordinator. Well, he was actually getting paid a bit then. It was Peter Quant mm. who'd come on. And so those two programs, you know, didn't need me. They to, had their own momentum. Exactly. They didn't need me to run them. The question was, how are we going to amalgamate, create structures that would hold things together. Mm. In many ways, the great thing about John Stott at that time was that he was sort of aware of that too. So he didn't try to tell me what to do, or I don't know that he had any more idea than I had as to what exactly would be needed. But I used to go and have breakfast with him. That was the standard thing. You know, you'd go and have muesli and <laughs> orange juice and coffee. And he'd get out a little notebook with things he wanted to talk to me about, and I'd tell him where I was going and so on. Mm -hmm. And we, we sort of worked on it together. But there was always this sense that he was saying, look, this it's now your responsibility to see how this thing moves forward. So in terms of your original question, we did not dream at all then that Langham would become a, basically a global mission organisation mm. with such reach and with so many staff. So it, it was all very small at that time. Mm. Um, and quite scary. And, and quite scary because it, it was uncharted territory really, mm. just wondering what, what the Lord had in store. And looking back now on those 20 years, it is simply incredible. And, you know, all I keep on saying is this is the Lord's work mm. and it's marvellous in our eyes because mm. it's not something we could ever really imagine. Mm. So one of the early developments was creating Langham Preaching. And it was with that in mind that you we first met in Uganda mm. in 2002. And Jonathan Lamb came on that year, was that? He did. He came in 2002. So what was the thinking behind starting that as a third programme with the Scholars of Literature? Well, the thinking really had been John Stott's, as all these things usually were. <laughs> but he, he had sort of got to the point of saying, yes, well, it's fine having scholars who are teaching future pastors. That's great. That's a sort of a long-term goal. And it's fine getting books into the hands of pastors. We hope they read them. But really what we need to do is to get hands-on with these guys and do some proper training. Mm. That was his idea. Mm. And he had been invited in October 2001 to go and do preaching seminars in uh, Peru and Argentina. So since I had just joined the organization such as it was, he asked if I'd like to go with him. So I said, fair enough. So we, we ended up going over to Latin America for those two countries, Peru and Argentina. And we, I remember sitting in John Stott's little flat, you know, several mm -hmm. weeks before we went, planning what we would do in this week. And it's remarkable how much of that original sort of frame has remained in the DNA of Langham Preaching. Mm. Because we go, well, we could do some lectures in the morning and teach a bit about exegesis and, you know, basic Bible, how to take a Bible text and so on. Then in the afternoon, we could get them into groups and they could do a bit of working on a text together. And then maybe in the evening, we could have a kind of a model. You could preach a sermon, John, I could preach a sermon mm. and just give them a bit of example. And that's what we did mm. uh, in those two places. And it was obviously appreciated, but then we sort of looked at each other and said, well, what do we do next? Because this isn't going to change preaching mm. in these countries, mm -hmm. just one seminar. Mm -hmm. There has to be continuity, there needs to be some sense of follow-up. But John and I both knew that he and I couldn't keep going back to the same country year after year. So we then both went to the International Council in, must have been late 2001, possibly early 2002, mm. to put on a, a motion on the table that Langham Partnership endorse Langham preaching as a third program mm. officially mm. with a budget uh, and a commitment and potentially a staff member and so on. 
So that's what happened. And then uh, Jonathan Lamb, who'd been sort of part of all this discussion, because he was working for IFES at mm. the time and was there for very much part of the discussion groups, um, we asked him uh, if he would take on the role of being the coordinator for language teaching. Mm. And it was while John Stott and I were both in Australia in that summer, uh, doing a sort of tour of Australia together, that he said yes and agreed, and John and I were delighted. Hallelujah. And mm. again, the rest is history, because mm. when Jonathan Lamb took on the role, the thing then began to multiply and grow. And mm. I mean, his IFES contacts were... Oh, yeah, all around mm. Europe and around the world, mm. and... Um, and so the, the invitations began to flood in. And then, as you said, in those early years, there were a few of us, you know, myself, him, and a few, one or two in the States, and one or two others, who were doing all the training and facilitating, just going around the world. Mm. And sort of, I went to Uganda, as you said, three times. I went mm. to um, Myanmar um, four times, went to Nigeria about three times, went to Jamaica. Mm. Um, so a lot of these places to, to get things launched. So in the first, few years I was working for Langer, I was doing five, six preaching seminars a year. For the last 10 years, I've done none at all. Mm. And that's good, because they're all now being done mm. by Indigenous mm. leaders, mm. the way that's grown uh, in Indigenous and continental leadership. Well, let's pick up on the Indigenous leadership thing. I mean, I think it was something that Uncle John was always very concerned about. I mean, that was always the vision that God's church needed God's leaders from those countries. I wonder, Tyler, did you pick up about Langham preaching in Nigeria? Because um, you were um, ministering in Nigeria before you moved to London. I have probably a friend of mine who was for Langham in Nigeria. Ah. So uh, I got to know about Langham through him, mm -hmm. but I didn't know exactly about the full ministry of Langham. Right. <laughs> so in a sense, I had, a, I had a kind of, from a distance, I knew about uh, so one of the key things, um, certainly uh, as I've witnessed as in my sort of small involvement Lang and preaching, but there's a real commitment to each movement and each region being led by people from that region. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of global mission and so on, Tyo, I wonder how important you think that is. Yeah. I, I think it's so important that we have a local ownership. Mm -hmm. I worked for a U.S. mission agency that did exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. I, I traveled extensively into many countries with them. Across Africa or? Africa, Europe, everywhere. Right, right. I went everywhere. And what I found out was that the weakness of our work then was that we kept on going back and forth ourselves. Even when people kind of were coming up and we saw their potential, we should have done some more training for them and get them to have ownership of that. Mm. And because we didn't do that, it just meant that every year, somebody had to go from the US or somebody from the UK or somebody from somewhere mm. going to all these countries. Now it sounded great on the outside, but internally it didn't develop the work. Mm. And so when I saw the structure that Langham does right now, which, which emphasizes local ownership, I think it's great. We live in a world where if three things have made it impossible for us to think in the old paradigm of somebody going somewhere again <laughs> all the time. Mm. Number one is globalization. Mm -hmm. uh, many years ago, it could be the case that, oh, we have somebody who's a genius somewhere in North America, <laughs> so we need to get him to somewhere in Australia or Africa. <laughs> but right now, movement is so easy. <laughs> now you can be in London, I get a night flight to New York, have a meeting in New York, and come back the following day, back to London, and go to work if you want to go to work. 
So that's number one. Number two is uh, communication. Mm. We are, we are in the digital eruption age right now. Information and knowledge it's a lot out there than before. Uh, there are average of about sixty five thousand videos that come online every day. Mm. Knowledge is no longer as scarce as it used to be. Mm. It's all over. Not many good ones, but a lot of good ones are there. Mm. So there's no reason for somebody to be somewhere and kind of be in charge of a work. It doesn't make sense anymore. And about three is the idea of even democracy. Whether it's rightly done or not, people have a sense now that, look, mm. it's for the people and by the people. And also, mythologically, I remember one of the best books that uh, Lamisane wrote before he died. A very good book, uh, Translating the Message. Ah, great yeah. book. Mm. One of the key points for me in that book was when he made a case that the beginning of the spread of or expansion of Christianity in Africa in particular was the fact that the Western missionaries translated this the message into the local languages of the people. Mm. And, and the gospel now took a local expression mm. that people could understand and pass on to. And I guess actually the COVID yeah. season yeah. reinforced yeah. the fact that actually, well, locally we can do things, yeah. but we do have technology that connects us yeah. if we need it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things we got from the preaching theme, which you know was that uh, during COVID, they were able to have more sessions together exactly. because of uh, uh, mm. uh, Zoom and everything. Yeah, So I think it's great. Yeah. And I think this would have rejoiced John Stott's heart mm. because you, know, you think really what, what made him in many ways, the powerhouse of evangelicalism was the, the first Lausanne Congress, 1974. Mm. And that was because he listened to the, particularly the Latin American brothers, mm. uh, Rene Padilla and um, uh, Samuel Escobar, mm. and gave them voice or enabled their voice to be heard. Mm. And, uh, and so you, you got this feeling that he always rejoiced when people like them and Jorge Adiencia, who he also mm. knew in Colombia, uh, and David Guattari and Festuk of Injury, some of the Asian leaders as well, people like Ramez Atalana in Egypt and the Middle East. These were people that he fostered into their own leadership in their own regions mm -hmm. and rejoiced to see flourishing. And, and then we'd go and visit them, but he, and of course they'd ask them to speak and everything, but it didn't depend on him. Mm -hmm. It was his fostering of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that has remained very much the DNA of Langham, that that's what we want to see, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I rejoice in that too. I think it's wonderful. I mean, to me, Langham having appointed Tayo here mm. as our international director mm. is a, a step that John Stott would have welcomed. I mm. love it. It's just, it's so what Langham ought to be mm. and at long last is. Mm. And, and it's a brilliant way of subverting the old from the West to the rest sort of mantra. Mm. It, it, that just really doesn't work anymore. Um, well, there is a sense in which it never worked, uh, <laughs> and, and was actually never true. Um, I love. I don't know if you've come across the book by Vince Bantu, a multitude of all peoples engaging ancient Christianity's global identity. Mm -hmm. And I just love the the opening uh, remark of his book. He says, "Christianity is and always has been a global religion. For this reason, it is important never to think of Christianity as becoming global, huh. because he points out that." The fact that we think of going from the West to the rest is partly because of the Western captivity of the church, which goes back, of course, to European Christendom right. when the, and the division of the churches of the East and the South. And so our sense of church history is, well, the Constantine early church fathers and then the Dark Ages, nothing happens, then Martin Luther mm -hmm. and then William Carey and then the West takes the gospel to the rest mm -hmm. of the world. Mm -hmm. 
And he points out, you know, that Christianity was in Africa before it was ever, you know, in in most of Europe. Mm. Uh, certainly, you know, in, in Nubia, uh, mm. and then in Aksum, you know, Ethiopia, Sudan. Mm. Yeah. That it went to Syria, to Mesopotamia, to Persia, to Turkey. Mm. Um, you know, it went south and east. To India. And to yeah. India and to China. Yeah. Uh, and so, the, the, in that sense, the, the Christian, and then, of course, we in the West, forgot all about that because you had this great schism because of the theological controversies post-Chalcedon and so on. So you get this sense that we have the sense that Christianity has gone from the West to the rest. And there's some truth in it because obviously the missionary expansion of you know the Protestant Western churches from Kerry onward, well before that from the Danes and India and so on, has yes led to a, gr a huge growth of Christianity in some parts of the world. But Christianity in nearly all those places was already there mm -hmm. um, in one form or another. Mm -hmm. So I, I just think that one of the things we need to be a little bit more humble about uh, is that we talk about, yeah, it's now we've got a global church. Well, yeah, we have, but it's not as if we have to wait for the Western church to make it a global church. Mm. That's a very helpful reminder, it isn't is, it? it is. And I think also we need to think about this in terms of movements. People have been coming to the UK from Africa for many years mm -hmm. to do gospel work. They were not popular because they did mission and age when we didn't have the technology to make them all over the place. But it wasn't a kind of mass movement. So they were not true. People didn't notice them. So it was under the radar. Exactly. So what we see at times is a kind of movement where there's a movement where obviously the trend was obviously and conspicuously from the West to other places. But like Chris said, it's not that they were not, they didn't have Christianity there before. And you see another movement now coming from the majority world into mm. the West. Mm. Again, there's a, a tendency to think, oh, the church in the West is dead kind of thing. But it's not that it's dead. It's a movement that's mm. just obvious in, in God's providence. And so celebrating those movements and not thinking the other is dead and one is alive, I think is what we need to be conscious of and just rejoice that God is behind people movement and causing things to happen for his own glory. One question often put to all of us who work for the organisation is, what does Langham mean? I mean, it doesn't really mean anything at all, not least because it is derived from one of London's shortest streets. It is, of course, where All Souls Langham Place is built, the church led by and associated with John Stott. As it happens, some of John's friends had created the Langham Foundation in the United States, but they struggled to raise funds because of the obscurity of its name. So at a board meeting, incidentally from which John himself was absent, the name was changed to John Stott Ministries. Stott was never comfortable with this as it implied a focus on personality, which is something he abhorred, but he understood its reasons and went along with it. Elsewhere in the world, its fundraising arms were all called Langham. So in fact, just before John died in 2011, the US branch aligned its name to Langham Partnership. I was curious to know though, how Chris sees the ministry all over the world as something that is working out Uncle John's original vision. Well, I think for example, that uh, the way over these last 10 years or more, Paul Windsor has developed uh, the Langham Preaching Program was not quite what we envisaged, but would have very much brought joy to John's heart. I remember when Paul was interviewed for the job of being the program director for Langham Preaching, he said, I don't just want to lead a team, which we all thought, well, we're all, we're all mm -hmm. happy to be team leaders and team mm -hmm. players. 
He said, I want to lead through a team. Mm. And I thought, that's a very interesting, subtle distinction. And so he has built up not just the international team, but the continental teams mm. and the national teams and the local teams, so that all the way through, as far as possible, decisions are being made closest to where they actually matter. I think the other thing that would have pleased him is the development of Langham Publishing as a department of Langham, pre of Langham Literature, because, you see, originally, um, Langham Literature was just John Stott wanted to get books into the hands of pastors. His own books, the royalties from his books, IVP books. Basically, he, he wanted to get books out there, and that mostly meant from Western evangelical mm -hmm. publishers into the West. Because leaders are readers. Because leaders are readers. <laughs> That's right. You know, um, what is this famous saying? Uh, preachers, uh, preachers can't preach if they don't study, or at least they shouldn't <laughs> preach if they don't study, but they, they can't study if they get no books. You know? And so you get the books. So, for many years, Langham Literature, even under Peter Quant, did not want to be a publisher because Peter always feared that Langham Literature could actually damage the evangelical publishing markets that were still so fragile in some parts of the right. world by undercutting them. If we're always just giving away free books, mm. then who's going to want to buy a book? Mm. But then he had a kind of Damascus Road <laughs> experience uh, and realized that if, if Langham didn't publish then there were lots of good writers and theology happening in the majority world which would never see the light of day. Mm -hmm. And so he then wanted to make Langham Literature a publishing house specifically and intentionally to publish the voices mm -hmm. of African and Asian and Latin American authors from their context, for their context, and to make their books both available and accessible and affordable mm -hmm. in the majority world, but also to be the means of bringing those voices to the Western world so that Langham Publishing would become an imprint on display in the Academy of the West, in the Society of Biblical Literature, in the big seminaries, mm -hmm. to get these voices in. And again, that was something that I don't think John Stott... What he liked to help to do was to get some of these people translated and getting their books into English or getting mm -hmm. books into their language. But that was a very tiny fraction of what Evangelical Literature Trust was doing. Peter, with Langham Publishing, has made it now a major part mm -hmm. of what we do is bringing the voice of the majority world to each other, mm. the rest to the rest, as it were, but also bringing the rest to the West mm. in order to enable us to hear their voice. I think that's been a development over these last... Whatever I mean, that's amazing, years. isn't it? It I, is. I've yeah. heard of seminaries mm -hmm. who just take a subscription to Langham Literature Books mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they're never going to read those people otherwise. Yeah, yeah. and libraries that are doing mm -hmm. that. and mm -hmm. um, Yeah, and, and now we're publishing at least, I think that last year was 50, book, 50 titles a year. Wow. Headed up now by Luke Lewis mm -hmm. up there in Carlisle. Oh, and the other thing connected with that is that I remember the day when Evangelical Literature Trust depended on me and a couple of others who were so-called evangelical academics, getting all the catalogues of the Western publishers, you know, IVP and Zondervan and Erdmans and Baker and so on, and searching through them to find the books that we thought would be recommendable onto the catalogue. Um, now, what Peter has done is he has found commissioning editors in Africa with Izamburu, in Asia with Rico Villanueva, uh, in Francophone Africa. He's basically getting them to find the books and the authors and the writers to get published. So it's not just that we are spotting good talent in the majority world, they are spotting their own talent, mm. finding them and then encouraging them and mentoring them mm. and getting them through the editorial and publishing process. And, mm. and again, that's relatively new mm. and uh, very exciting. Mm. 
I also think that the strength of that lies in the fact that uh, real global impact really comes when people think critically in their own context mm -hmm. and then find a way to let that go out there to the global space. What Langham has, does, has done is to help a lot of these people, empowering them to do what they couldn't do by, by themselves even if they had the knowledge and everything we they do, but the, the system to make that work for mm. them would have been practically impossible without Langham. Just too many hindrances. Too many, exactly, hindrances. So it's, it used to be the case of translating Western materials into local languages. Great, but it does not give any amplification of the voices of the people. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> So I think that critical role that Langham is playing is very, very, very huge. Mm. It's huge. I'm not a publisher, but I have had time to interview a couple of them, and I know the weakness of African publishing exactly is because it's more selling rather than giving authentic voices. So it's a business more than it's a ministry. Except for the ministry. And so I think Langham is what we do is actually a game changer for mm. our people. Well, it's interesting. So we've talked about preaching and literature so far. We were just touching on scholars. And I know, Tai, you're finishing up a PhD yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I know something of how that feels because I'm trying to finish something as well. Um, but uh, why do you think that is important? Why, why, as a ministry, having a focus on scholars, which, frankly, is going to be just a tiny group of people globally. We're just talking mm -hmm. a matter of a few hundred in yeah. total. Why is that a, a priority? I think it's a priority because uh, scholarship gives gives a kind of depth to any culture that is beyond just local church ministries. Mm -hmm. If anything happens in any particular context, sometimes it's almost impossible for pastors to speak into those contexts because they are critical issues. Even if they had the knowledge to do so, they could be criticized of just being partisan in their approach to mm -hmm. that problem. But when a scholar speaks with a lot of depth of reflection, mm -hmm. and also the depth that they're able to approach a subject is different from the level of just preaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen it even in the majority world, especially in Africa, where I belong to, I've seen how our scholars have helped us to, to keep us on track on some areas where we almost were going astray as, as a church, as a church in Africa, and they, they have written to say, no, please, this is the line to go. I, I think we just need more of that mm -hmm. a lot. The challenge of it is that sometimes, many years ago, when people did scholarship in Africa, they divorced themselves from the church mm -hmm. ministries. Scholars are now going back to churches to help them think, think through how to engage in the world of today. The challenges we face now, they are much more critical than many years ago. Hmm. It's not just like health and wealth, they're actually deeper than that. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I think I would make possibly three points, uh, you know, going back to John Stott himself. I think his main desire was that um, those who become scholars would become teachers in seminary. And he, he used to say something I didn't quite agree with, but he would say that the seminary is the key institution in the mm. church. <laughs> I would say it is one of the key institutions <laughs> in the church, but his, his reason for that was, he said, um, 
the seminaries are where pastors are either made or marred, they're either <laughs> they're trained or they're ruined, yes. you know, um, his famous words. And so he wanted to capture the seminaries of the world for the evangelical gospel and have men and women who were um, both academically able, but also spiritually on fire and able. So that, that was really his desire. And, and I think that sense of therefore choosing men and women who were and, and investing in them spiritually rather than just giving them money to get their doctorate, was important for him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he used to do this talk to the new scholars mm-hmm. every year in, at the sort of orientation in Oxford, where he would say it would be possible to go back as an academic success for a spiritual favor, uh, <laughs> failure, <laughs> to have become a doctor but no longer a disciple. Yeah. <laughs> classic. Absolutely. Stuff. Archetypal. Classic, <laughs> yeah, classic stuff. And of course, he was absolutely right mm. because, sadly, in a very few cases, that has happened. Yes. You know, people end up uh, under the dazzle of the glittering prizes of academia, you know, going astray. And you know, um, but on the whole, um, I would say a huge, vast majority of Langham scholars have have been well selected and, and have maintained that. I think two other things: the doctorate in itself is is not the important thing. But it does have a certain ticket value. That's to say, it gets you places you wouldn't otherwise get. Um, I remember when when I got ordained and got a reverend in front of my name, I used to think it was a little bit like Paul's Roman citizenship. You know, <laughs> it, it, you know, it wasn't intrinsically important, but it got you places, and you know, that other, you would you wouldn't otherwise go. There was a level of significance about it, and I think certainly um, getting a PhD. Um, it, enables you and equips you for certain kinds of roles that otherwise are not available mm-hmm. and also gives you a credibility in cultures which may or may not be deserved but <laughs> the fact that you're a doctor or a PhD gives the credibility. The most famous example of that I can think of because he does make the point himself is um, in Egypt. Andrea Zaki uh, who did his doctorate in the, the whole theology of political Islam mm. uh, and its relationship to Christianity and when he went back to Egypt, he has sort of risen through, in a sense, the ranks of the church to become the, the chair of the Council of Protestant Churches of Egypt. Mm. And his voice speaks into the, the, the political sphere. He's, he's, he, he walks with government because he represents the churches. Mm. And he would say, quite honestly, that would not have been possible if it had not been for having a PhD and having the right to speak into mm. those situations. And I think the third thing is to me that... Uh, John Stott really believed that our minds matter. I mean, that was a little book that he wrote once, Your Mind Matters, that the Christian faith is uh, obviously a matter of the heart and the soul, but it does include loving God with all our, our mind, our heart and mind and strength. And so to have the commitment of godly scholarship on the scriptures and in church history in all of those areas, which is reflective and which is thinking and which is creating intellectual capital for the church, is a godly and right thing intrinsically. Mm-hmm. And you go right back to the early church fathers. I mean, that's mm-hmm. who they were. Most of them were bishops and theologians. Mm-hmm. And so I think some of our Langham scholars are doing that. They're providing the intellectual gravitas for, for churches, mm-hmm. as Tyler was saying. And in some cases, keeping churches, you know, on, in the right track. Yeah. And, I, and I think in the African context, we, we have a, a bit of work to be done here. How do we get to that point where we let scholarship play a major role in this. So if you look at Nigeria, Ghana, all these places, the frame of reference of an average Christian out there is not still from the realm of scholarship. Mm. 
Mm. It's from the trend of their denominations. Uh, so I think we need to move we need to move from that kind of place to a place where our scholars are available mm. for churches and see the church as uh, uh, co-workers in that space and not leave this into the hands of popular pastors and uh, a TV show, TV show mm. to run everything. Mm. Mm. And I think so in the West, for example, you can be a good scholar and churches will be inviting you. You can have a voice in the West as a scholar. People have a sense of intellectual prowess here. In many African countries, it's still the big church leaders who are pulling the crowd and the weight. Yes. And, and so we don't just give the scholars lots of money to show that they're influential. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and also, we try to say, one of the reasons why we insist on scholars going back to their home country or continent is that we're not just investing in your career path, mm. we're investing in the church which has sent you to get that mm. scholarship. Mm. So that's what John Stott wanted to do, was to mm. help the churches. Yes. And so when, if, if somebody comes and takes our shilling, as it were, and then stays in the West, mm. it is, in a sense, a betrayal mm. of, of what the whole purpose of the program is for. Mm. Um, uh, and again, by God's grace, a very high percentage of Langham mm. scholars who've received Langham funding have returned. Mm. In over 50 years, it's more than 85%. That's mm. amazing. And in the last 10 or so years, it's been over 90%. That's good. So it is, it is quite remarkable. And mm. of course, initially that was because John Stott would look these guys in the eye and say, of course, you will return. You don't deny that, do you? Yeah, yeah, there was a very strong personal <laughs> sense of commitment yeah, yeah. to having you know, been picked by John Stott, as it were. Mm. Um, and so we've had to build other things now that he's no longer doing that. Mm. One thing that is very different from when Langham Scholars first started out is that the programme now seeks to send students to seminaries in their own majority world context. So now just over half of the current Langham Scholars are doing their doctoral programmes outside the West, usually in their own continents. There was some caution about this move as the concern was to ensure that PhDs gained would be credible and thereby uh, make people employable in seminaries and academic institutions. But further research culminated in a conference in 2010 in Beirut, Lebanon, when Langham dialogued with 14 majority world seminaries to discuss what the essential ingredients of a PhD should be. Chris and his team came up then with a set of what they called the Beirut benchmarks. And these seminaries, and indeed many others, have since adopted them. What really encouraged me in that conference in Beirut was that these brothers and sisters, because they were you know, sisters and brothers from, from different parts of the world, they weren't coming to, quote, us Western funders, as it were, to say, what's the least we can get away with and still get a doctorate? You know, what are the sort of minimum standards of a doctorate? They weren't saying anything like that. They were saying, we want our doctorates, if we have one, to be the best it can possibly be. We, we know we can't rival Oxford and Cambridge and so on, but we want to have a level and a quality which is going to stand the test and which will be respected. Uh, and so what will it take to be the best? Not what's the least we can get away with. And I thought, that's the attitude that we wanted to have. And that's what came out, and I think they've been used since. And again, I think that's something John Stott would have welcomed. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, the thought that occurs to me li listening to this is, is that actually quite a lot of people doing PhDs in the West mm -hmm. don't have that approach of integrating mm -hmm. and serving the church. So mm -hmm. for them, really, is just about the glittering prizes. Mm -hmm. 
And so this is actually quite a powerful witness to people here. Mm. Yes. When you know, our Langham scholars from different parts of the world go to um, universities uh, in Britain, for example, up in Edinburgh and mm. in, in Glasgow and, and St Andrews and mm. so on and Oxford mm. and Cambridge, they do bear witness to that, you know, because yeah. they are recognised by professors who are not necessarily, you know, card-carrying evangelical mm. Um, mm. theologians. They're sympathetic and they're fair and they're objective, mm. but they recognise that some of these Langham scholars that come are the best students they ever mm. have because they're so committed, they're so diligent, mm-hmm. uh, they, they have such a high view of truth, and you know, and and so they they praise them quite often. Mm. Um, as among the best of their students. We've mm. heard that a number of times. Mm. Wonderful. Mm. So, Chris, you are now our global ambassador. <laughs> and Tayo is the international... What's, is it International Ministries Director or International, international Director? Director? International Director, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so just, just the Director. So I'll just I'll say yes, boss. Um, <laughs> so... How do you see the next few years? What do you think the big challenges and opportunities? Obviously, there's so many unknowns post-COVID and mm-hmm. what's going on in Ukraine is upsetting all kinds of um, balances and predictions. But for the, the ministry, we're, what, in 70-plus, nearly 80 countries? Mm-hmm. Or at least. More than that. More than uh, that. Langham preaching is in 91 countries. Right, there we go. So um, how do you see the coming decade, say? I think that's a very big question that I've been trying to (laughs) (laughs) grapple with my mind. I think we need to find a way to do more integration of our ministries. How do we work together in such a way, the idea that we actually have the same goal, the same mission here, Mm -hmm. but we're doing different things. I want a situation where before publishing, can think about even publishing a book. So I've done a lot of deep consultation with the, uh, the preaching theme and say, mm. what, do you, what do you think is going to achieve in this part of the world? Mm. <laughs> Does it make sense? Can you help us do some survey and get across the world? Or talk to the, the scholars program. You know what? Help us do some survey for us about this book and let's just have that. I'm sure they do all of that in principle, but I'm talking about a, an intentional involvement mm. or scholars wanting to bring more scholars on board to train them, asking questions also from other programs. You guys are in these countries. What do you think are really the needs of these people? Mm. So that inform us about who we really need to take, so we can go back and speak to a context that is relevant to why we are training this person. But also maybe between the programs and our executive uh, uh, directors of partnership, what we call NET, you know, I think we could do more with not just that raising funds for us, but because many of them are also mission thinkers now, yeah. right? <laughs> mm. For everything we want to do, rather invite people into this unmoving train, I'm thinking, how do we start to get the journey together? Mm. Who is needed at the beginning of that project? I've seen it when it's done properly, it's, it's very powerful in the sense that it brings a lot of skill sets together, into a program, yet a program to have her own distinctiveness. Mm-hmm. But but as it is, I mean, it's it's amazing what's going on. I cannot, I've been in this program for about a year, and whenever I look at our three programs, I'm like, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where, how did he call it? We, yeah. It has to be God. No, <laughs> nobody could have figured this out <laughs> in advance. No, no, it has to be God. Yeah. yeah. And then on the, on the one side is the executive uh, uh, leadership 
I have a bit of not a bit, quite 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 very passionate about because I've done a similar job before, is to see how that we all see ourselves as different parts of a system. Mm. I, I I love a lot of as a lot of. Um, Respect to the system, that work, you know, a lot of mutual respect for one mm. another, a lot of uh, good uh, uh, relational uh, capital. I want that to turn into functionality mm. you know, in terms of how it works together. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, um, I feel a bit like the politicians who, when they're asked a question, said, "Well, before I answer that, let me just say <laughs> the, the real question." Yeah. <laughs> because you, you did begin by saying, "You know, I, I've moved from being international director and then um, now global ambassador," and in a sense, both of those are transitions because the first was a transition from John Stock to me, and now from me to Tayo. And when some people sort of ask, you know, what. What have you learned from all of this? I, and particularly from John, I would say the art of giving up or the art mm. of leaving. Mm. Because to me, um, John Stott did that twice. Once when he stepped out from being rector of All Souls to rector emeritus and mm. handed over the leadership of the church to Michael Bourne, mm. that that was a genuine handover, mm. as I understand it. Mm. And certainly when he handed over to me, um, I really did feel that he was encouraging, he was supporting, but he was never pulling rank, you know. Mm. I remember being in a board meeting when people would often, he'd be there, and people would say, well, what does John think? And he would say, oh, Chris is our leader now, you know. Mm. And, and I, it, it was flattering and it was humbling, but mm. he was genuinely wanting to make sure that, uh, that I wasn't hampered by the old man being mm. in, the, in the seat, as sometimes old leaders tend to do. And I've said to Tayo that uh, that's the way I felt in handing over to him. Not only this great sense of relief. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like it's your problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I'm no longer having to run the day. But also really wanting Tayo to feel that he, he, we will work together as much as we can and whatever you know, bits of history and memory and mm. wisdom I've got are at his disposal. But it's now it's, it's, it, he's in the leadership seat. So... So that's the first thing I wanted to say is that I think it's good for organisations to go through that kind of transition uh, into a new era with new leadership, with, with new skills that would never have occurred to me to do things, just as I've had to sort of do things that wouldn't have occurred to John. So I think for the health of an organisation, it's good that um, things move on. I think in terms of the, of the future of Langham, uh, I, I think we're going to have to um, learn how to be a genuine conduit or portal or mutual organisation in which having been an organisation which under John Stott's sort of vision was to help the, quote, the wealthy church of the West mm. share its resources with the, quote, poorer churches of the majority world uh, in order to facilitate their growth with depth because he said there's growth everywhere but it's growth without depth. So how can we come alongside in a way which is not paternalistic, but which supports. And by God's grace, he was doing that, and we, we still do. Mm. And so there's a whole, in a sense, wealth of faithful supporters and lovers of Langham in our Western countries, like especially in the States and US, we know best, but also in Australia and New Zealand and Hong Kong and so on, Canada, who still who are still thinking that way. God bless them. It's, it's not a wrong way to think, mm -hmm. but they're still thinking, we have so much to give, Mm -hmm. and there is so much need mm -hmm. so let us do the good thing and give to their need um, how will we move from that godly and good and compassionate way of thinking 
to realizing, yeah, but actually, you know, rather like the Church of Laodicea, when mm. God looks at the Church mm. in the West, He says, you know, mm. you think you're wealthy and have all you need, but you're mm. actually poor and blind and pitiful, you know. Mm. And how do we in the Western Church mm. have the humility to mm. meet with our majority of our brothers and say, please, we need your help. Uh, I was saying this to one of the American churches I was in last um, week, and I said, you know, because um, they're asking, what do we need to do? And I said, well, one of the problems is that when when an African or an Asian or, a, you know, a South Asian, a brown face comes to a church, a Western American church, mm-hmm. the instinctive reaction tends mm-hmm. to be, how can we help you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What can we do to help you? Mm-hmm. Whereas actually, this may be a brother who's come with a rich experience of church leadership, of theological development, of virtual martyrdom, possibly, of suffering and abuse mm. for Christ, and they've come to this Western church, and we say, you know, how can we help you? It should be the other way around. Mm. You know, what have you got to tell us? How can we learn from you? Mm. Now, in Langham's terms, I think that will require delicate, nuanced discussion mm-hmm. between some of our very faithful supporters and those who serve them as national executives mm. and who have to, in a sense, keep encouraging them to give money mm. so the ministries keep going. And how do we become a genuinely majority world-led organization? Not just in the sense that we've got a Nigerian as our international director, but that actually the decision-making and the leadership and the thought processes are coming from uh, the majority world. And how do we do that in a way which is genuinely mutual? Mm. It's a real partnership. So it really is partnership. And even that word partnership, you see, again, Mm. I was was reading a book, I don't know what it was, but I was sharing this with American brothers. There's a Western sense of partnership, which is very project oriented. <laughs> We've got a project and we want you to be our partners. So please join us in our project, which we think you like and it will benefit you, but join us to do this. And then when the project is accomplished, basically the relationships can now disappear because the job's done. What will it take to get the job done, right? Whereas it seems to me that in indigenous cultures, and this is something Jay Matanga and you know, the WEA Missions Commission is saying a lot these days, is that... In indigenous cultures, it's the relationships which are mm. primary mm. and the tasks which are, in a sense, come out of the relationship. Mm. So the relationship will always be there because we love you, we know you, respect mm. you, your brothers and sisters. Oh, we could do this together, couldn't mm. we? Yeah, well, let's do that. And then we'll go on We think of something else. So the relationship is primary and the task is secondary, whereas in the West, it's the task that's primary and the relationship is supported. Mm. And I think Langham needs to benefit from both because... You know, God bless them, our, our, our dear friends and brothers in the States. There is a tremendous God-given value to this sense of can-do. You know, mm. there's a job to be done. Let's get on and do mm. it, you know. Mm. And they rise up and they raise the money and they do it. And that's mm. wonderful. Mm. At the same time, we have, you know, a whole host of friends and, and brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are saying, we love you. Please come and join us and be part of what God is doing here. Mm. And we have to kind of bring these two realities together and see what God will do. I think that's the perfect note <laughs> on which to end. Um, so, Chris and Tyler, thank you so much. It's been a, a wonderfully um, refreshing and uh, fascinating time to chat. So thank you. We've heard both Chris and Tayo speak about the exciting ways in which the Langham work has developed around the world. Please do pray for Tayo, particularly in his newish role taking over from Chris, especially because a very complex job was made even more challenging by his starting during lockdown. So he's only now able at last to get to know workers and volunteers around the world in person. 
But in the light of the conversation, please do pray for two things. Firstly, for the ongoing integration of the three Langham programmes for scholars, literature and preaching to work ever more in partnership with each other. But not only that, pray for our partnership as a movement and organisation with the myriad other grassroots ministries that we encounter in the different countries and continents globally. Secondly, please do pray for the churches of Europe and North America to show greater humility and openness to learning from brothers and sisters in the global south, as it's so-called. Nobody has the monopoly on understanding the gospel or understanding the Christian life. We all give credence to that, but actually in practice, uh, we rarely give opportunities for others who are different from us to teach us. We have so much to learn. Too often, Christian leaders from Asia, Africa and Latin America seem to be summoned by organisations in the global north to give reports and be accountable to them, as if they are the experts in the north without any reciprocity or genuine partnership. It's as if we in the Global North know better. Well, it may be that there's more money in the Global North, but there isn't a monopoly on holiness or maturity in the Global North. This does not reflect the reality of God's kingdom. So pray that Langham can be a key means to giving the global church a voice and an entirely appropriate shared authority. So at last, we've come to the end of our Stott Centenary project. We hope you've enjoyed the journey as much as I have. And as I've said, there are countless more people we could have talked with, and perhaps you yourselves know some, you could ask your own questions about Uncle John. This is not because he was perfect or ideal in every way. He clearly was not. He was flawed, he was at times selfish, he was at times wrong and unwise. The remarkable thing about him, however, was how often he was selfless, insightful and revolutionary. Especially when seen against the backdrop of the twilight of the British Empire and the rise of globalisation. Where there are things to learn then, let us learn. Now, in the unlikely event that you've not heard all the episodes, they will remain in the archive and hopefully provide a great resource to share with those who know very little about Stott. But as we come to an end, I must give great thanks to my Langham colleagues for the support, advice and help. And the biggest thanks must go to my colleague Vic Marseille from Langham, UK and Ireland. Her stalwart efforts at editing and compiling and putting it all together, especially when my own incompetence as a sound engineer is, well, frankly, obvious to everybody. So there might just be the odd special one-off episode in the future, but this is certainly the close of the Centenary Project as a whole. Please do recommend and review wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much indeed for listening.